A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon at the Carnes Church of Christ on the topic of where are the dead. Uh, because of that sermon, there were several people that wanted copies of that lesson and uh, wanted to share it with friends and family. And uh, as we went to make copies, we discovered that, uh, well, Murphy's Law was still alive and well. Uh, for some reason, the sermon didn't record, and so we have no copies to make. So I promised uh, those who had asked that I would sit down in my office and just uh, re-preach uh, that sermon uh, to a microphone. And so that's what I'm doing here today. But if you would uh, try to imagine being in the time of Adam and Eve, what would they have known about death? Now, what we know about death uh, it comes from two sources. It comes from experience and it comes from revelation. What we know about death from experience is that when a person dies, they cease to be animate. Th- their body will decay. And um, w- that much we know from just experience. But what do we know beyond the experience of death, the contact that we have had with death? The only way that we can know what lies beyond the grave is through revelation. And as I think back to the time of Adam and Eve, and I think uh, they understood something about death. There were animal sacrifices at that time, and so they understood at least from uh, an animal standpoint that when death occurs, that animal ceases to be animate and their bodies would eventually decay. But what about the death of a human? What did they know about that? Did what, did they ask questions when when Abel doesn't come home one night, and they maybe discover his body in a field the next day or the next week? What did they think? Do you think questions would have gone through their mind? Is this the same as it is with the death of an animal? Uh, is Abel still conscious? Does he? Have memories? Has he ceased to exist? Is he in a sleep state? Does he remember us? Does he still love us? Will we ever be able to have any kind of meaningful interaction with him again? All of those questions must have run through their mind. And those are the same questions that we face whenever uh, we attend a funeral. When someone close to us dies... Those questions run through our minds. We may not think a whole lot about them. We may put it in the back of our mind when things are going well. But when we're faced with the reality of death, uh, we begin to ask questions. And I don't know if God answered those questions to them directly. But I do know that he has answered those questions for us living today. Or at least some of the questions he's answered for us. Uh, My curiosity, I must admit, is probably greater than the revelation that God chose to to give uh, because I have questions that he just hasn't answered. But what he has told me is enough to give me um, peace of mind. It's enough to uh, give me strength to go on, and it's enough to give me hope for a better day. In the Humanist Humanist Manifesto 2, which was written in 1973, um, it was stated uh, in this fashion. There is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. 
Modern science discredits such historic concepts as the ghost in the machine. Well, two things are said here. Number one, modern science, of course, discredits the idea that a human is both physical and spiritual. The the concept of having a soul, oh, surely you don't believe that anymore. Modern science discredits that kind of thing. But not only do they deny the existence of life after death, but in this, con- they, they belittle it by calling the soul or the spirit of a man as the ghost in the machine. Well, they go on to say, rather, science affirms that the human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. Promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. They distract humans from present concerns. Well, I find it interesting that they would say that the promise of salvation or the threat of hell is not only an illusion, but it's harmful. They argued that it distracts people from uh, present concerns. We need to get our head out of the clouds and be concerned about and thinking about um, human, uh, you know, conditions while they're here on this earth. But, friends, I would suggest that the promise of salvation and the fear of damnation is not a distraction from human human concerns, but rather it, it... I wouldn't want to live in a world that didn't have those uh, fears and those promises. What would this world be like without the restraint of uh, accountability? What would this world be like if people weren't trying and striving to, to go to a place called heaven? I, I think that the promises of heaven and hell, they don't distract people from present concerns. Rather, they involve people in present concerns. But anyway, there are those who simply deny the existence of life after death, yet the Bible says it exists. But to the question, where are the dead? How how will we go about answering that? What does the Bible say about the state of the dead? Well, if you have your Bible with you, open it with me to Luke chapter 16. And I want us to look at a passage from Luke 16, which records for us a glimpse beyond um, the the uh, mortal. It gives us a glimpse into uh, life after death. Now, I know there are people that kind of get all bothered by, is this a parable or is this a real story? I believe it's a real story, but even... If it weren't a real story, if we want to classify it as a parable, what difference does it make? Parables were stories that spoke of events that could really happen, whether they actually happened or not. They could happen, and they're used to illustrate truths. For instance, you know, Jesus said, a sower went forth to sow. Well, now, whether he had in mind a, a particular man that he once saw walking down the, the, the path sowing seeds, uh, you know, I don't know if that's the case or not. But that really happens, doesn't it? And whether or not there was really a rich man and Lazarus, uh, that, that really doesn't matter to me. It could be, uh, you know, a, a parable that Jesus is telling. But even if it is a parable, 
it's still based on factual things, things that can really happen. The reason I believe it is a real story is because he calls this man by name. It's not just a certain man, but it's Lazarus. He had a name for the man. So anyway, let's read the text and let's see what it says. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who would have, who was laid at his gate. He desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It was so that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember... In your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who would want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, Well, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, Listen, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to him, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This story in Luke chapter 16, verses 9 through 31, gives us a glimpse into life after death. And what we have in this story is a man who was rich, had everything he wanted, a man who was a beggar. They both die. The beggar was taken, carried by the angels, and placed in the, the bosom of Abraham. The rich man, notice it just, it doesn't speak about angels caring for him. It just says he died and lifted up his eyes in torment. He was being punished. He describes it as a flame and he just wanted somebody to cool water on his tongue, uh, just to, to dip water and touch his tongue because he was in such agony. When he was told that that couldn't happen because there was a great gulf that existed between them, that they couldn't pass back and forth to each other. He said, well, would you at least send Lazarus back to my brothers? I sure don't want them to come here. Please, just send Lazarus back. And Abraham said, no, they have Moses and the prophets, or the writing of Moses and the prophets. Uh, they need to just listen to what the Word of God says. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. If you'll just send Lazarus back, a man come back from the dead, they'll believe. that They're not going to believe what the Bible says. Send Lazarus back. And Abraham says, I'm sorry. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to Lazarus who comes back to them from the dead. Now, that's the story. That's the information that God has given us of what lies beyond the grave. And so here's what I'd like for us to ask, some questions. Where are the dead? Are they in the ground? 
Well, no, I know they're not in the ground. Well, how do I know that? Because James 2 and verse 26 says this, For the body without the spirit is dead. So if you have a dead body, what's missing? The spirit. We put dead bodies in the ground. Therefore, the spirit is not with them. So if we put dead bodies in the ground, then I know that that spirit isn't in the ground with it because the body without the spirit is dead. So the next question is, well, if they're not in the ground, uh, of course, they're in heaven or hell, right? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Well, no, that's not what it teaches either. Because do you remember John chapter 3 and verse 13? John said, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Hadn't there been righteous people for generations, for thousands of years, who had died prior to John saying this? Uh, What about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Even God claims them. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet, they weren't in heaven yet. If you're to believe what John said, he said, no man has ascended to heaven except for Jesus who had ascended into heaven. So, well, if they're not in heaven, do, do, what, what about hell? Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter 2 and verse 9 that even the wicked don't go directly to hell. The Bible says the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment For the day of judgment. So when the righteous dies, we see from John 3.13 that they're not yet into heaven. And when the wicked dies, we see they're not yet judged and sentenced to hell. But they're reserved under punishment, not for punishment, but under punishment for the day of judgment. Well, if they're not in the ground, and if they're not in heaven, and if they're not in hell, where are they? They're in some place in between. We'll call it what the Bible calls it, and we'll call it Hades. In John chapter 20 and verse 17, Jesus had just died. He had just resurrected. Three days have passed. And Mary sees Jesus, and you remember she falls down and grabs a hold of his feet. And John 20 and verse 17, Jesus said this to her. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary falls down and hugs a hold of Jesus, and Jesus says, Mary, let go of me. I've not yet ascended to my Father. There's still some things I have to do. You go and tell the other disciples that I haven't ascended yet. I will ascend but I haven't done so yet. Well, question, where's he been for three days? If he's not been in the ground, and if he's not yet in heaven or in hell, where has he been? Well, the answer to that is Hades. Hades, at least the way we have frequently used the term in in our society, um, we've used it as a euphemism, a softer way of saying hell. Um, oftentimes a person doesn't want to swear and say hell, so they'll, they'll substitute the word Hades for it. But Hades is not the same place as hell. 
Hades comes from a different Greek word, an entirely different Greek word than the word that refers to that place of eternal torment. Uh, that word is the Greek word Gehenna, and it's used in such passages as, um, you know, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Uh, those passages that refer to that lake of fire, those are the passages that are use the Greek word Gehenna. But this place where Jesus was is a word that is called Hades. It's a word that has reference to the realm of the dead, the realm of disembodied spirits. It's the place where men and women will await the return of Jesus, the day of judgment, and then they'll be able to be assigned heaven or hell. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, um, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against me. Even though Jesus was dead, he was saying death is not going to keep me from establishing this church. He was going to leave it. And of course he did. So let's, if you can imagine, um, while here on earth, we have, you know, we live on earth and, and today we can be righteous. Tomorrow and for five years from now, I may make the decision to turn my back on God and live for myself and I become unrighteous. And I might come to my senses five years from now and decide to begin living for Jesus again. And then I can become righteous again. The point is that I can change my spiritual condition while here on this earth. I can pass from being righteous to unrighteous to righteous once again. But what happens when death overtakes me? I can't change. That's the picture that we have in Luke chapter 16. We have a picture of a man, uh, two men, who while living on this earth had chosen their courses, and now they're dead. And one man wants to change, but he's told he can't. One man is being comforted in Abraham's bosom. The other man is being tormented in what he describes as a flame. The man who's being tormented said, you know, I I want out of here. And and he said that we can't do that. There's a gulf that is a, a chasm that is so wide between us, so fixed that we can't pass from us to you and you can't pass to us. In other words, when you die, your destiny is sealed. There's no more passing back and forth, righteous and unrighteous. Well, those people who have died, they find themselves either being comforted or tormented. And what will they await? They await the return of Jesus. They await the time when that day that has been appointed, Acts chapter 17, that day that has been appointed when the Lord will judge the righteous, the dead and the living, according uh, to the things that they've done in their body. After that day of judgment, those who were righteous will go to heaven. Those who were unrighteous will go to hell. I know that sometimes people say, yeah, but what's the point of the day of judgment? I mean, if the rich man already knows, if he's already being tormented and knows that he's lost, then why have a day of judgment? The day of judgment isn't for God to figure out where we belong. 
You, you don't think that God who knows all things doesn't know the moment you die, whether you're saved or lost. The day of judgment is not a court trial like we have today where a judge sits and listens to the evidences and then determines the fate of one. God already knows the fate of those who stand before him. The day of judgment isn't for God to ascertain anything. I think if we looked at it more as a a vindication of his righteousness. Nobody, in other words, is going to wake up in hell and say, wait, this isn't fair. God never gave me a chance. I never got to defend myself. I never had my day in court, so to speak. Everyone will have their day of judgment. And God will be vindicated, justified in the assignments that he makes because of this day. And so that's what we have here. These... This rich man and Lazarus, as well as Abraham, are in this waiting place for the return of Jesus. But now, let's look a little closer and ask some questions and see if this passage doesn't answer some questions for us about life after death. Here's one of the things that I learned from this. There's no second chance after death. I learned that from Luke chapter 16 and verse 26. He said, um, you know, have have somebody come and have Lazarus come and, and dip his finger on my tongue. I'm being tormented. And he said, I can't. That gulf between us prevents us from doing so. We can't come to you. You can't come to us. So the crucial thing is to get your life right now. Don't wait. If you tempt your destiny, if you bargain on living a certain amount of time and you put off your obedience to God, if you die outside of Jesus, you have no hope. There's nothing that can be done to change your condition after death. Here's the second thing that I learned. There's consciousness after death. Luke chapter 16, verses 22 and through 23. They're having a conversation. They're not soul sleeping as some people teach. Some people teach that when you die, it's just you go to sleep and you wake up and it's judgment day and here you go. This passage doesn't say there's sleeping. It teaches that there's consciousness after death. The rich man is communicating with Abraham and Abraham communicates back. That takes consciousness. Here's a third thing. There's recognition after death. Luke chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. Lazarus, or the rich man, looked up and he saw Lazarus, and he knew that he was in Abraham's bosom. How did he know? It's not from recognition from um, physical characteristics, because their spirits here, their, their bodies are in their graves. And, and while well, Abraham would have lived 2,000 years before, he wouldn't know what Abraham looked like from any pictures or anything. So how did he know? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how that recognition took place, but there was recognition. Um, he knew who Abraham was. He knew who Lazarus was. And so after death, I know that there's recognition. I also know that after death, there is remembrance of things here on earth. Because in Luke chapter 16, verses 27 through 28, do you remember what the rich man said? He said, Abraham, 
please send Lazarus back to earth because I have five brothers. He remembered his family. He remembered he had five brothers. He also remembered their spiritual condition. He said, send him back to my five brothers lest they come here. They need to repent. And I hope that by sending him back, it'll cause them to repent. You know, one of the hard things that people have to deal with when when they go to the grave of a loved one is when they walk away from that cemetery, the question that they often have is, is my love for him unrequited? You know, I love my husband so dearly. I love my wife so dearly and still do. But do they remember me? Is it all just one-sided now? The answer to that is no. The person who has died is still the person he used to be. He still has memories of those he loved back on earth. That's what we see from this passage. And so that should give us hope and, and comfort that even though a person dies and you still love that person, they still love you too. And then here's another point. There's no contact with the living after death. The rich man said, will you please send Lazarus back to my brothers to warn them so that they will repent? And Abraham said, we can't do it. They have the word of God. They need to listen to it. There, I understand, and I'll say this up front. I understand that there are exceptions to what I'm about to say. Because I can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28 and I can read of Saul consulting the witch of Endor. And he was trying to conjure up the spirit of Samuel. And God caused Samuel's spirit to come back and to speak to Saul. I understand that certain people have come back from the dead. But it wasn't without God's permission. It wasn't without God's intervention. But without God's intervention, divine direct intervention, when you die, you're dead and you don't come back. There's so many people who say that they have, have died and, and uh, so many books have recently been written along the line of uh, bestsellers in the Christian market today have talked about certain deaths that have occurred and things they saw and, and then they were allowed to come back. Um, listen, answer this question. Of course, without God's divine intervention, if God won't let the rich man go back or Lazarus go back on behalf of the rich man to talk to his brothers about salvation, then what makes us think that God will let people come back for things lesser than that? People will come back and say, you know, I, I, I had a visitation from so-and-so and, uh, you know, they, they told me where they left the garage keys. Or they told me that such and such was in a certain uh, drawer in, in the closet. Listen, if God won't let communication take place for something as serious as the salvation of one's soul, then what makes us think that God is going to let people come back and share uh, trivial matters with those that have been left behind. There are several lessons from Luke 16. I encourage you to read it. I encourage you to study it and learn from what is said. There are a whole lot of questions I still have 
that the Bible doesn't answer. But I think we have to be content with what God has given us. We make no progress when we surmise and when we postulate and when we uh, offer things, you know, that are our opinions. What we need to do is just stick with what the text says. And I believe that things we've talked about today are what God has revealed, not from experience, but from revelation about what happens to us after death. Since we do survive the body after death, and since there will be no second chances to make things right, to make amends after death, now needs to be the time that we prepare for it. Eternity is too long. Hell is too horrible to delay in our obedience. From Luke 16, I find great comfort. I find many of my questions about life and death and what happens after death. It gives me great comfort to know that those who die in Jesus are found being comforted, awaiting the return of Jesus and the time when we can all be reunited in heaven. I also find a motivation to live every day for Jesus because I also see from Luke 16 that if I die outside of him, I have no hope and my fate is sealed. I hope this lesson has been profitable to you and I hope that you'll give uh, consideration and further study uh, to this passage. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me and we can discuss about a number of matters more in more detail if you'd like. My email address is higginbotham.steve at gmail.com.